Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. And we are back with our look into the second flashback of the book of Mosiah, following the story of Alma and the Church of Christ, who find themselves in the land of Helam under the rule of the wicked Amulon and the Lamanites. I wish I could sit down and talk with Mormon about why he chose the stories that he did. When we keep in mind that Alma and his people have been in the land of Helam for about 30 years, we quickly realize that we have almost no idea what happened during that time. So far, we only have the names of two people who are part of this church, Alma and Helam, and we don't even really know what Helam's role is other than the fact that he was the first person who Alma baptized and they named the land after him. Well, we can't sit down with Mormon and pick his brain, so we have to get at him through his writing. It's clear that Mormon doesn't need us to know a lot about what happens in the land of Helam. I'm sure Alma taught some amazing sermons. We don't need to read them. I'm sure that there are all kinds of interesting things that we could learn from the church as it developed into a true community. We don't need to know them. Apparently, the story that Mormon really thinks we need to know is the one that we left off on. The one where a wicked Nephite, who should know better, convinces the Lamanites to give him power and to help oppress the church. That's going to be a story that is repeated time and time again in the Book of Mormon, In fact, the vast majority of problems between the Nephites and Lamanites from the founding of the church until the coming of Christ will be the fault of wicked Nephites leading the Lamanites to attack the church. We also get this story as a model that is not as often repeated in the Book of Mormon. The church responding to the oppression that they're facing, not through violence, but through patience and faith in the Lord for deliverance. It will happen again, but it's rare. It's almost as if Mormon, looking back on the entirety of the history of the Nephites and knowing that that history is about to end in a violent civilization-ending war, is imagining how things could have gone differently if more people learned the lessons that that little church, formed at a place that he was named after, had to teach them. Okay, let's pick up our story in Mosiah 24 verses 1-7. through This chapter begins with Mormon telling us more about the ability of the Amulonites to gain power. We've already known that the priests of Noah were skilled power brokers, but this is taking it to another level. The Amulonites are inserted as teachers over all the Lamanites. They have essentially regained their position in the king's court, but this time it's a Lamanite king. When you have people so blatantly switch allegiances like this, it's a sign that it was never so much about an ideology as it is about power. The Amulonites help the king carry out what sounds like a dramatic expansion in territory. There's a central king named Laman, but then Laman appoints regional kings, and he's placed Amulonites in the courts of those kings as teachers. It actually sounds like a pretty good move by King Laman. The Amulonites are educated Nephites. They know the language, customs, and history of the Nephites and begin to teach them to the Lamanites. They don't teach anything about God or the law of Moses, We already know that any lip service that they gave to these things was really only about their own status. But the Amulonites teach the Lamanites to write. Apparently, the Lamanites were a society based in oral traditions before this. But now they can keep records, communicate more effectively across greater distances, centralize power, commerce, and gain more advantage over other people in that region. 
if the record we were reading weren't written by a Nephite, this actually might be seen as a golden age for the Lamanite kingdom. Things aren't as great for Alma and his people, however. In verses 8 through 15, we read that Amulon was especially oppressive of the church because he remembered Alma from when they were both priests of Noah. He seems to have taken personal offense when Alma lobbied for Abinadi's life. It was like a betrayal of his station, or maybe even of Amulon himself. I'm not really sure what else could be motivating this anger. We don't have a sense of the relationship between Alma and Amulon prior to Abinadi. Perhaps when a Mormon tells us, for Amulon knew Alma, that's an understatement. Maybe they were good friends. Maybe Amulon was Alma's teacher and Alma his star pupil. This grudge certainly seems personal, and it sounds like the only thing holding Amulon back from making things even worse for Alma and the church is that King Laman still has authority over Amulon. Whatever the interpersonal backstory of Alma and Amulon, the result is that Alma's people are enslaved with the intent of causing pain, and it works. Alma's people start to cry to the Lord for deliverance, possibly in very public displays, and Amulon makes that illegal, even punishable by death. I'm sure some people were actually put to death just to prove that Amulon was serious. The church continues to cry to the Lord, but in their hearts. To me, this sounds like a refining process. I know we use that word a lot in the church, but the church likely went through a hopeless period where they thought the inability to worship God was a catastrophic development. But when they weren't able to lean on their rituals and gathering that they normally depended on, they discovered a deeper, more profound way of drawing on God's grace. It isn't that rituals and ordinances aren't important. Almost people just learn that when the resource of public worship is taken away, the more important resource of grace remains as available as ever. There's an opportunity for comparison here with our current circumstance with COVID-19. For the time being, many of our traditional ways of being religious, quote-unquote, are not as available to us. Setting aside the weightier saving ordinances, let's just consider something like seminary. Seminary can provide a useful case study for many of the roles that churches generally fill. There are all kinds of reasons that someone might attend seminary. They may have a genuine interest in studying the scriptures. They may feel that they benefit from the positive social environment. They could just want to break from school. Their parents might be pressuring them to attend. Or they might feel other social pressures to attend. In reality, it's usually a mix of these things, and that's a good thing. It means that seminary can serve a meaningful role for people at different points in their experience with the church. That's similar to attending church. People go for all kinds of reasons. But we shouldn't pretend that even though each of those reasons could be useful in their own right, that they are all equally holy. Now that the scaffolding of seminary and public worship has been removed for a time, and there's not a group of kids walking across the street to the seminary building every day that a student can just fall in line with, it requires more effort in some ways, more commitment. And that means that if a student still wants a profound experience, they'll need to find the motivation. And we're seeing that with Alma's people. The same could be said for the church in general. What keeps someone reading the scriptures or praying or caring when the public displays and social pressures, positive and negative, are removed? Perhaps in our own small way, we have a similar opportunity as Alma's people to refine our motivations as well as our relationships with the Lord. One final personal note on this tangent. I've said before that this podcast has forced me to study the Book of Mormon in new ways, 
and it has become a daily form of worship for me, beyond what actually makes it into the final episodes. I'm incredibly grateful for the Book of Mormon. One thing that we see when we look at events that prompt the production of Scripture is that crisis and Scripture are often linked. Many Hebrew Bible scholars believe that the majority of what we now know as the Old Testament was written after the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. That's also when Lehi's family starts writing what would become the Book of Mormon. The New Testament is written after the crucifixion and during periods of pretty intense opposition against the church. Most of the Zenophite records tell us about conflict, and the Jaredite records are found during an attempt to find a way to escape Lamanite oppression. Mormon writes the Book of Mormon on the brink of the utter destruction of the Nephite civilization. Even in this dispensation, the record that we know as the history of the church, or Joseph Smith's history, is written in response to the Missouri persecutions, which some scholars have called genocidal, and major moments of revelation concerning the work for the dead come in the context of death and sickness. Joseph Smith first taught about baptisms for the dead after the persecutions in Missouri, and a summer filled with malaria in Nauvoo. Joseph F. Smith had his vision of the spirit world following World War I and in the midst of the influenza pandemic. Crisis and scripture seem to be bound together. Okay, tangent over. Something that had to be infuriating for Amulon is that however much he tried to oppress the church, Mormon tells us that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them, that they could bear up their burdens with ease. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. There's nothing more infuriating to a would-be tyrant than a people who refuse to think of themselves as victims. I imagine a lot could have been written about what type of burdens they had to bear. But Alma's people demonstrate that our circumstance does not determine our experience. Here again we see the surprising value of submission, something that our modern Western culture undervalues. We learn throughout the book of Mosiah that the Lord delivers us when we are ready for his deliverance. That readiness looks different for all of us and likely different at different points in our lives. Mormon tells us, and it came to pass, that so great was their faith and their patience that the voice of the Lord came unto them again, saying, Be of good cheer, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. And he said unto Alma, Thou shalt go before this people, and I will go with thee and deliver this people out of bondage. That's the story we get in verses 16 through 25. The method of deliverance is similar to what happened with Limhi and his people, except this time, the people don't have to get the Lamanites drunk. I imagine after the incident with Limhi's people, the Lamanites were a little more wary of accepting wine from Nephites. This time the Lord just causes a profound sleep to come upon the taskmasters, and the people take what they need and flee until they get to a valley that they call the Valley of Alma. There they pitch their tents and offer thanks to the Lord for the grace and deliverance they had received. Picture this. They haven't been able to worship publicly for some time. We don't know for how long. And now they are able to. It has to be a major moment of relief for them. I hope we experience the same type of gratitude when we are able to gather together and worship again. It's during this period of communal worship that the voice of the Lord comes to Alma, saying, Haste thee, and get thou and this people out of this land, for the Lamanites have awakened, and do pursue thee. Therefore, get thee out of this land, and I will stop the Lamanites in this valley, that they come no further in pursuit of this people. This is almost comical. The people are all taking the time to worship and give thanks, but the Lord is like, You're welcome, 
but it's more important that you get out of this valley. I expect the Lord loves when we show our love and gratitude for him, but he also wants us to be wise and practical. I know I've brought up COVID a number of times in this episode, but I am grateful that the leaders of the church have taken this seriously. There's a church in our area that very publicly attempted to hold a massive Easter service during the lockdown. I understand people's desire to worship, but the Lord wants us to be wise as well. And the leaders of the church have done a good job teaching that by example. The chapter ends with Alma and his people making it to Zarahemla after a 12 days journey, and they are received by King Mosiah with joy. That ends the second flashback in the book of Mosiah. The arrival of the people of Limai and the people of Alma, and particularly the introduction of a church into the Nephite kingdom, will cause everything to shift. In the remaining five chapters of the book of Mosiah, Mormon will begin to examine some of those shifts, including persecution from some of the young elites of the Nephite society and the dissolution of the Nephite kingdom, and those things will set the scene for the rest of Mormon's narrative. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.